Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. I'm here with uh, Matthias Hollanders. Matthias, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, Andrew. It's good to finally meet you. Yeah, you too, man. I said your name right, right? <laughs> you did. I, I'm actually surprised you managed to say that. I don't know how. how I think did it you was. Uh, do that? I think it was uh, Kyle Elmore that told me how to say it right. <laughs> oh, really? I'm I'm, I'm surprised because we we never formally met. So I'm really? surprised how uh, Scott Scott and John were always pretty good at pronouncing it. Surprisingly. Yeah. But uh. Yeah, so, no, yeah that, man, that's that's good. I know you from really the Houston, Texas herping scene originally, but we've never actually met. By the time I moved to Houston and started herping with people around here, you had already moved off and traveled the world. So yeah, I was sort of uh, I was sort of never able to to let go of my my Texas herping roots, and I feel I, I sort of got into snakes when I was about twelve or thirteen, and moved away from there when I was 18 and learned, you know, most of what I know about herping from people out there. And for some reason, just the, the animals you really want, like when you first get into something, you're so into it that those animals you wanted to find become almost mythical. And, you know, like examples like that for me are, for example, timber rattlesnakes. I never got to see a live timber rattlesnake. And just the fact that, you know, that animal is so, so high on my list still that that's why I think I'm so closely tied still with East Texas and all that, because that's, that's where it started for me. So I'm always trying to keep up with what everyone's finding out there, even yeah, though, man. even though I'll never get to go there. Like <laughs> when, whenever someone posts something cool, I was like, Hey, like wh where was that? Just because I wanted to like, you know, I want to, I want to stay in touch with it in, in that sense. Yeah. And I've, I've always wondered, like, why do you still give a shit about, Texas herps, you know, you, you, you've herped in South America, you know, various areas in Europe. Now you're in Australia, been all over the place and you're still like invested in the stuff that, you know, I find and, and other people around here find. I'm like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. A, a similar thing happened when I was, uh, I was living in Spain for a while. The, the job was catching lizards and I hadn't really been into birding for a long time, but suddenly I started seeing these birds that uh, or as a kid, I was obsessed with birds and I would just read through the field guide and stuff. And I'd see all these Mediterranean birds that I, we didn't have in Holland. And then suddenly I got to see them again, or I got to see them for the first time. And it was just so obsessive because yeah, those were the animals from my childhood that I really wanted to find. And a similar thing's going on with, yeah, my, my remaining interest in, in Texas herbs. Yeah. So cool. I, I really want to come back sometime and just just clean up all the stuff I was unable to find before because yeah yeah I'm, I I miss a lot and I yeah, want to I would, see those things. I would surely enjoy it if you came back and and uh and get out of the field together. Oh, it'd be so good. I just live vicariously through you guys <laughs> yeah. in that sense. Um, so I want to like start with you've lived in all these various places. Where where were you born? Where are you from originally? Um, I'm from Holland. I was born in Holland. Yeah uh lived there until i was 11 uh yeah my dad works in oil so a lot of people move around um place to place and stay about four years in each place so i, I knew a lot of kids at school that, you know i'd lived in three four places by the time i met them uh, when i was in high school in texas uh, my dad's postings were a little different. first international posting was houston and then we stayed there for seven years Okay. So instead of having like multiple postings, we had a sort of longer posting out there. Yeah. So yeah, it was seven years 
from 11 to 18, I was in Texas, and then I moved back to Holland, uh, spent about six years at university there with maybe a year of that was living abroad. Um, and then when I was 24, 25, I moved to Australia, which is where I'm living now, doing my uh, okay. PhD. Gotcha. And when you came to Houston, that, that, that is when you really discovered your passion for natural history? No, my passion for natural history had existed for as long as I remember. Like there's oh, yeah, not a single moment of my life where I wasn't obsessed with animals, but it yeah. was it was herps that started then. Like I'd seen one snake before in my life. And then I think I was 12, I was walking the dog by this creek that runs through our neighborhood. And you know, those Houston creeks running through suburbia are just full of Nerodia, the water snakes. And it just blew my mind because I, I wasn't used to seeing snakes. And I suddenly like there was a snake right there by the creek. And it was like such a, such an alien experience to me. And I just kept going back and it's actually pretty funny. I think a lot of people can relate to this, but those first, I think it was two years of herping. I had no idea what I was doing, you know, yeah. just like walk, walking tracks at uh, Brazos Bend State Park and just never, never seeing shit except for maybe a broad banded water snake or a cotton mouth. And it was just ridiculous. And then, you know, you don't, when you don't know that stuff, you don't, you don't think about driving roads at night or flipping flipping trash to find snakes it just it shouldn't work as well as it does so you have no idea that that that's the way to do it but yeah i used to go out in the heat of summer and walk around and look for snakes yeah, snakes you know, like a right? snake season for me was go out in the middle of june in the middle of the day when it's hot and dry and and uh i found like no snakes of course uh, yeah. except for nerodia except for water snakes yeah yeah, pretty much. And I'm, I'm still surprised. Like I, I sometimes talk to people that, you know, know reptiles. And a lot of the time they'll be like, they'll talk about warm, sunny days. It's like, I don't know about you. Like I cannot find a snake when it's warm and sunny. Like if it's above 20, 20 degrees, like I'm, pr I'm probably not going to find <laughs> any snakes to be honest. Like, I don't know what, yeah. what it is. Like, yeah, I, I know they'll be active and stuff during that time, but like, I, I, I won't be able to find one. That's for sure. Yeah. How did you first uh, discover herpers? Um, field herp forum. Yeah, figured. And it's it's funny actually. My first this is this is really funny to reflect upon because like I was you know I was terrible at herping when I first started because I I didn't know what I was doing. And I first found field herp forum and people were just posting the fact that they were finding like a bunch of snakes. And I think it was intimidating to me that I just like closed it and didn't look at it for a while. Cause I was just like, <laughs> like, nah, there's, there's, I just didn't want to admit to myself that I was doing something so wrong, you know? And then, yeah, somehow I got back onto it and I just like realized, you know, people were, were talking about AC and it took me a while to realize it was artificial cover and just like <laughs> all these abbreviations and shit that I had no idea what it was. And uh, yeah, I ended up just contacting the first person I, I, uh, I went out with was uh, Tom Sinclair. I don't know if you, if you know who that is, but. Uh, yeah, I, I do. Um, but I, had, I never got out with him. I was supposed to go with him one night and um, I never made it out. We're going to go look for pygmies, of course. But yeah, well, <laughs> I won't, I won't say too much about that, but <laughs> uh, yeah, let's. Uh, I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't say too much about that, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's all that many pygmies left there anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then I, I started herping more like the 
three people I, th- I think I heard most with was Scott Wahlberg and John Williams and Brandon Bowers. And for some reason, they were okay with taking a 16-year-old, like, sort of along on their trips and show me show me stuff so so that was good but yeah I'd say I'd say field hurt for him and I suppose that was early days sort of social media and that is still that's still how I meet most people today and I think that must be true for lots of people yeah you know field hurt forum was replaced by Facebook really Mm. seems like I don't people still post on there I I I was actually thinking a few days I haven't checked up checked in years and um I'm also not a fan of Facebook. I only have it for Messenger, so I do pretty much everything through through Instagram. Yeah. But yeah, that's still, you know, I still meet people that way. That or I meet every herper that way. I don't think I've ever met someone not not through some link with social media. Yeah. See, when I was first starting to get a feel for um, like the people that uh, I need to get in with around Houston and just uh, people are that know about herps. Um, it, it, it was John and Scott and, and, and Bowers mm. and, and, and you too. Your name was always mixed in there. And so I was like, it's like, I got to talk to this Matthias guy to, to get locales and stuff. Yeah, I was, I was, I was always quite happy to like help people and stuff. Like, I think the best, the best example of where the, the, um, the student becomes the master is when, when Kyle started herping like i remember him posting on field herp forum i think i think i even remember his first post which was like that he found a coral snake somewhere and he just got interested in it and i was like oh look like what you want to do is go to these dump sites and flip boards and all that stuff and i i never got to meet kyle he got into it like i think maybe i'd already left or right before but you know how he is now that guy that guy's a machine i don't know he's 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 just on another level i feel but yeah yeah, I I looked up to him too because um, I mean he finds some some really amazing animals uh, with his mm. obsession with flipping, you know, <laughs> and just high just high volume, you know, like the high numbers. That's something uh, a lot of people can turn up one or two of an animal, like you know milk snakes. I wouldn't have seen more than like three or four in my time in Texas. It's like just also because I didn't know what I was doing very much, but like you know. I think if you spend if you spend enough years looking for animals, you'll probably find one or two of 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 the cool ones that you want to see. But like to get the numbers, I think that's what that's what sort of separates people. Yeah. What part of Houston did you like the most? For like, because like we have very like if you go to the north side, you get you know timbers and stuff. West side has its own unique feel in the prairies. Mm-hmm. Then you got the coast with Getula and Atrox and. Yeah, I think I, I I would have spent the most time definitely in the in the prairies and on the coast. And yeah, I feel like Houston it's so it's so diverse with so many different places. But you know, you still got to drive like two hours in any direction a lot of the time for it to start producing. So like it, it's always a mission, you know, to to get somewhere. I feel. Uh, but probably my favorite my favorite would have been the coast. Just being able to like find those those old buildings and stuff and then finding i don't know the getchula are just so yellow and so big out there and you know rattlesnakes on the beach it's just it's kind of ridiculous but yeah, yeah there, there, there's something about that that's like yeah quite special that i haven't seen in many other places like i haven't found many snakes on the beach you know and you, you've been to many different places too <laughs> yeah yeah actually well i'm trying to think if i found snakes 
on the beach in Oman. I don't think I have, but like sometimes that whole place sort of feels like a beach because it's so it's so sandy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you so you never you never got a timber, but you got pygmies. That's kind of crazy for me. I got a well, I got a pygmy on I think my first or second night out oh, with got Tom. Dumb luck. It was just a, huh? Sorry. Dumb luck. Yeah, it was just it was just crossing that road, you know. Like it wasn't. Yeah, I didn't I didn't find a pygmy in a in a yeah. in a like a cool place or something. Yeah. Yeah. I still haven't got one. It's really disappointing. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, they're, they're just oh yeah. We spoke about that a, a while ago. They're man, I think they're just so so hard to find. Actually, the, there, there's a funny thing with with timbers how. Scott and I were sort of independently looking for them for a while, like in Colorado County, I think. And we were driving the same roads and it was something like over the course of like two months, we each went out maybe four or five times independently. And I think each night he went out, he got one. And each time I went out, I didn't get one. <laughs> so you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a game of probabilities and you might feel like you've been out a lot, but you know maybe you've only been out ten or twenty times. And when you're dealing with fairly low probabilities of detecting an animal, like it's not, it's not that strange. You don't pick one up after twenty or thirty or forty times. Yeah, that's sort of the way I think. Like it's really easy to get this bias when you've been, you know, you've spent maybe several days looking for it. It just feels like you've been out there for ages. But really, you know, if you write down the hours that you've been out there, it's really not that much that you've been looking, you know. That's, I think that's something that, that gets a lot of herpers, um, that bias. Mm. I, don't, I don't actually understand their their effort. Um, and, and also, you know, when you're spending, uh, if you're not spending time in optimal conditions, that's also lowering your probabilities too. Yeah, yeah. It's just a waste of time, basically. Yeah. One example of that is I've been looking for, for tiger snakes where around where I live for for a while and there's just there's a few spots where people do turn them up and that's a place where i feel like i've been out there quite a few times but to be honest it would have to be it's probably between 20 and 30 times that i've walked those tracks and i maybe spend two or three hours there each time you know so like yeah it's a lot of time but it's not like it's not like an unheard of amount of time it's so yeah, the, yeah. The, these biases definitely slip in there. Yeah, I think most people. I think most people would be disappointed if they were to drive if they were to write down the actual hours spent for specific animals. And, and They'd be like, "Oh, actually, it wasn't that much." When I think of my my pygmy efforts, it's probably a very low number. <laughs> well, I think I think from you, you told me about some of those pygmy efforts. You know, you like you definitely it wasn't just the average like going for a walk or rolling some logs and and all that like you set up drift fences which for a small range sort of animal like if they were there they should probably have ended up in the traps i don't know if yeah so i think you're dealing you know some animals are just genuinely low density i i think a lot of I don't have any evidence to support this really, but I think a lot of people think reptile populations may be larger than they are sometimes. Yeah. I think a good example actually is I recently found a tiger snake. It's, it's in the same sort of mountain range where I've been looking, but it was on the Queensland side of the border, not New South Wales. And this was a spot where some people had seen tigers before. And uh, we went there and we found one. And it turns out it was the same individual that a friend of mine called there. I think it was a year and a half ago now. And 
Wow. You know, like that's crazy. <laughs> that yeah, I'm I'm not saying that's the only animal there. I'm just saying it, there's probably not that many of them there if we happen to catch the same individual. Yeah. So you yeah, know what are the odds of that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What was your your so your white whale for, for Tex or Houston area herping uh was a timber rattlesnake that you didn't get? Yeah, I've 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 had a I've had a few actually for the biggest white whale which is hilarious would have been a copperhead for the longest time because as i said before i had no idea what i was doing right i was walking trails and i don't know about you but i've not seen many copperheads during the day i've seen like two or three hiking trails in houston like active during the daytime it's very rare yeah so i would always go to brazos bend and look for we'd get me and my dad would go together we'd probably get there around seven or eight and hike until maybe noon or some some afternoon hour and i wasn't rolling logs i wasn't doing anything and you know it probably took two years to find one on a trail there finally (laughs) and then you know the i've only i've only road cruised i mean a few years later when i you know knew about road cruising i road cruised out there a few times and always got several copperheads on the road you know it's like and if you flip once I knew that like copperheads actually you can flip them pretty well under logs, like I would pick them up in logs as well or under logs as well. But yeah, that that for the longest time as a complete rookie was was the white whale. Uh after that, a coral coral snake, coral snake took me forever. I actually I think yeah, I found a coral snake on my last night road cruise in Texas before moving to Holland. Wow. So it took it took me that long to find one. Yeah. Was it out in uh Colorado, Colorado County? No, it was actually, um, it was on one of the roads that is adjacent to Brazos Bend, actually. Okay. I remember I was with Brandon, I was with Brandon, Brandon Bowers. And um, yeah, it was like the last time we could go herping together. And we went there because I think he told me he'd seen a few copperheads or a few coral snakes on, on one of those roads. And finally we got one. But I mean, I spent a lot of time road cruising, like uh, Atwater, Sam Houston, uh, a lot of time it, it's called Anawak. Yeah, Anawak National Wildlife Refuge. Yeah, yeah a lot yeah. of time out there. A lot of snakes um, there. Oh man! So one, t- I mean, some of the crazy, one of the craziest reptile events I've ever seen was like a flooding event there, and there were hundreds of roadkill snakes, hundreds of them. And I know before I knew John, I think. Yeah, we didn't know each other at the time, but I think he was there in like that same week photos, but I didn't really take many photos, but there were just, you know, every, every 15 meters or something, there'd be a dead snake on the road. It was ridiculous. I've never seen anything like it since. A lot of, a lot of brown snakes and water snakes. Yeah, but also lots of getula, several mud snakes, uh, just Regina, just pretty much everything that lives there, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. That area, uh, there's some really interesting herps in those prairies out there, like diadophis, mm. ringneck snakes, and I think Kyle got a tantilla out there somewhere in Chambers County. Oh. Well, that's yeah, a place where have... I think a, a smooth green, like if one was going to pop up, that would be a place I would feel like it could happen. It's... Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I didn't know there were diadophis there, actually. Yeah, and this guy, uh, Michael Sager, he was cruising it all the time um and he, he's pretty good at road cruising he'd go out in the spring he'd go after you know light rains and he got a lot of snakes and he put them all on iNaturalist and he got i think two of them actually one dor one live 
on it. Oh, really? Was it on the actual refuge? Or? No, no, it was um, it was in that. There's a nice patch of prairie to the north of it. Um, I won't say the road name because we're not here to give out locales. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, if you look on the aerials, there's there's Mima Mounds out there, and it's really nice virgin prairie. Mm. And you get there's mm. a lot of hognose snakes there. Uh, slender glass lizards are there. It's got all the mm. original prairie herps. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, that... yeah the, the, the absence of smooth green snakes over the last, what is it? 40, 50 years or something. Something like that. Yeah. That is, that is something that still kind of baffles me just because there is one moment. Uh, the last like minute ha has been pretty rough connection wise. Um, okay. have it. Hold uh... on. I, I might, I might chuck you on my phone because, um, Sometimes the Wi-Fi gets a bit shit. Got you. Uh, yeah, yeah. We just continue about, where we left off. You were talking about prairie herbs that are still here. Oh yeah, just just talking about smooth green snakes and um, how they haven't showed up in all these years, whereas a bunch of other prairie herbs sort of have shown up over the years and have turned out to be more common than we thought initially so i think crawfish frogs one example that they have popped up in a fair few places since over the last couple of years haven't they yeah yeah they have um i haven't put a serious effort into finding them myself but you know, like, you know john's found them and, and you know toby's mm -hmm. found them and um brandon and yeah then brandon's now doing the chicken turtle work and i mean they're pretty darn abundant in some areas yeah that's that, that's the impression i got and it's just like you know clearly well those things I think were really under surveyed for the longest time, but I know, I know Toby's put in some pretty decent effort into finding smooth green snakes, or at least he turned up diadophus and all that stuff. Yeah. So, and I know John checks the, the fences religiously for any shrike kills. So I don't know. I don't know where they are. Yeah. They could, they, I mean, they gotta be here. They, they're just, you can think about other herps that are that are much larger, like other snakes that are much larger, um, that just are that occur in low densities and just have just very low detection rates. And hmm. so you imagine this small little fossorial snake that lives in dense prairie grasses, and there's all this private land in Texas. You know, they they could be hiding on some ranch in Chambers hmm. County or in Colorado County, where where nobody has really sampled. I don't know. Hmm. It's, uh, yeah, they're not here. It's still fun to think that they are, and it 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 almost seems unscientific to claim that they're not here. Like, how would we know? Yeah, they got yeah. there's got to be some little relic population hiding from us. You'd think so, unless it's like just a systemic sort of change, like what's happened with horned lizards. I mean, what you know, where it's like just this 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 environmental thing that has wiped them out over the their whole distribution. I'm not actually sure what wiped them out. I think was it pesticides or something or man, that, it seems like there are a number of things. Um was it wasn't it the decline of the the harvester ants um mm. because of fire ants or man, I actually don't know. I'm not gonna act like I know, but uh, it seems like habitat loss was a part of that. But it was mm. there was one big big issue, something to do with ants. I know that much. Yeah. Well, I, in a way, I sometimes take issue with the habitat loss argument because yeah, that's a thing, but a lot of, a lot of animals don't have large home ranges. And even though habitat gets lost on like a, a large scale, there are still patches that haven't been lost 
you know, like they've been altered, but they haven't been lost. And yeah, I don't know. I sometimes, I sometimes struggle with that because I suppose me coming from Holland, there are so many extremely isolated patches of habitat with absolutely no corridors for reptiles to move between because it's just completely built up. And yet there's populations there. So yeah, I mean, the, the place I looked for, for vipers the most when I was living in Holland, you know, I reckon it would take you 10 minutes to walk across the entire or walk from one end to the other end. And yeah, there's just like population of vipers there and other snakes and yeah, they, they just don't need much. So that the whole, the habitat loss thing explaining large scale declines, I struggle with it because yeah. in, if it's habitat loss, then I think you would expect to find them in the remaining habitat. Yeah. Yeah. I think you don't. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's a, I, I find it pretty fascinating. Like we have it here too with death adders. They just seem, apparently they used to be real common and now they're, they're not. And then people, people think it might be toads, but then there's places with heaps of toads where that there are death adders or like where the death adders do turn up, there's still shitloads of toads. So yeah. That, that to me is not strong evidence. Complicating, teasing the, these things out. There's all sorts of oh. factors to, to consider. But like back mm -hmm. to the smooth green snakes. I mean, they don't, a tiny little fossorial snake like that, they don't need a very large area. Like their home range is probably mm -hmm. square square meters, you know? Mm. Yeah, and yeah. So you, you can have these prairie remnants, you know, these couple hundred acre tracts of prairie that surely, that have never been plowed, you know? Mm. Never, never, like there's still meme mounds out there. You know, it's never been, disturbed like surely they would still persist there unless there was a larger issue at play like you're you're alluding to yeah yeah uh i agree and with those smaller fossorial things though i feel like cover boards really do work quite well to detect them i mean you know you're not going to see many diadophus crossing the road or anything but you, you'll you'll flip them if you put boards out although so, you, you found a, a diadophus on the road didn't you uh I was with John when he saw it. Oh, I got you. Yeah, that was ridiculous. John's got some eagle eyes, though. Dude, he's you know he's my boss now. So I, I didn't I, know I, that. I, I did. I, I did see you guys uh, in the field of it. I didn't know he was your boss. Yeah, he's my actual, my direct supervisor. <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. He just texted me a second ago. We're we have field work tomorrow, but we're making sure, um, you know, we we hit a couple herb spots on the way. <laughs> That's perfect, man. That yeah, that reminds cool. me. I was. When I was working in Spain, my my boss was uh, Walter Bokema. I'm not sure if you know him. He's I a European know. herper researcher. Uh, he's a he's a legend. But we'd have to go and go to these spots to find lizards, and we'd usually try and get the lizards out the way as quick as we could, and then just spend the rest of the day herping. We absolutely cleaned up during those three or four months. I mean, it was amazing. We found pretty much everything we were looking for. It was yeah. it was great. So there's for, for East Texas, we'll do a little more of Texas and then we got to, we got much more uh, to cover. Uh, yeah. Louisiana pine snakes were obviously probably something you thought about. I, I thought about it. I went, I checked traps with Scott once cause he was doing the, the snake traps out there. Um, I think the only person currently capable of finding those is Kyle. And uh, <laughs> I would, I'd love to see him find one. But, he doesn't uh, really care about looking for those in East Texas, I don't think. 
well even lose i mean even louisiana yeah. like finding finding one anywhere within its distribution that's not in the snake trap is is uh is a monumental achievement i feel yeah i think yeah, yeah I, I wonder if they're gone from east texas what do you think Scott, Scott was actually putting quite a bit of effort, or at least he said he was going to put effort this summer to try to hike one up. He, he still mm. seems to think there might be a couple around, you know, and he's out of everybody in Texas that, that could find one. I, I think mm. Scott is actually the one to find one because he had so much extensive experience working with them. And he actually, he did find a, at least one outside of a trap when he was doing that project. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's... I, he, he's very familiar with the East Texas longleaf pine ecosystem. Yeah, he sure is. I should probably, I should probably extend that. He is also capable of finding one, not just Kyle. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Kyle would go out there and put a bunch of boards and probably find one before anybody. <laughs> Screw the traps. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, no, Louisiana pine. I mean, that, that was so, that was so far from like the realm of possibilities for me. That wasn't anything I even dreamed of, of finding. I, I, I set my targets a lot lower because, yeah. When I hike East Texas Longleaf Pine Savannas, I, I don't even ever imagine seeing one. Um, yeah. I, I, I would like to find a northern scarlet snake in East Texas, and mm. that, that's a more achievable goal, but still very freaking hard. Mm. Well, all, all I, I'm sure you know that all I know is, is that apparently some, like, early summer storms can be good. Yeah. To, to flip them but yeah. yeah yeah i mean that's that's another epic species hey to find out there i mean just i i love those those things that here when you're at the edge of the distribution and it's sort of like you know this is about as far as you can go but and, and still find one i always think that's kind of cool yeah, i've got some friends who actually have the opposite opinion they're like why would you go and try and find something where it's rare when you can just go to the heart of its distribution and see one but i feel like for me, a lot of the point about herping, it isn't even the actual animal. It's it's the whole chase. And you know what I mean? Like, there's a reason we're not that obsessed with the stuff that's really common, even though, you know, if they'd be really rare, like, they'd be awesome. Yeah. And, and te uh, you know, Texas, East Texas is special because, I mean, there are areas where, you know, a scarlet snake is living in the same habitat as a glossy snake. Mm. You know, you get these eastern sort of eastern U.S. species that are out here on the periphery of the range with typically western species mm. like, you know, a glossy snake. Yeah. Like the post oak savanna and, and even into the longleaf, the pine mm. savannas. And to me, that's yeah. the, 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 the different plant animal communities that sort of join together in Texas really gets me fired up. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Hey, I, I, I do regret not spending more time. Well, first of all, just in those post oak savannas, but also like around that Gus angling area. I only went there once or twice, but it's just, it's such a unique, you know, like the, the coastal plain, it stretches from like the East coast and sort of ends in Texas. And then to have it meet another sort of biome is amazing. Like there's just not that many places where you can, where you can see that. Like you just, you're definitely in a unique part of the world when you go to those sort of edges, you know? Yeah. And that does that, which is, is that a, a bias that you have because you, you did spend time here, or, but are you saying that, as someone that has herped in many areas, different continents, um, it, it, do you truly believe that on a worldwide scale, it, it is rather unique? I, I think any place like that, where you get large, like sort of big biogeographic regions meeting each other, I think those places are 
are always interesting. And the coastal plain sort of post oak area is just an example of that. But you can find stuff like that anywhere. Yeah. yeah and I, I mean, an extreme example of that actually is, is Oman, where the northern part of the country is Eurasiatic and the southern part is Afrotropical. And there's just several hundred kilometers of pretty much empty desert separating yeah. the two. But, you know, you, from the, in the south, you can find hyenas and cobras and leopards. And in the north, there's, you know, Asian species. So I want to get to Oman. Uh, a, f- a few more things about Texas. Did you make it to yeah. South Texas? Yeah. Oh, God, speaking of white whales, <laughs> I'm just like, I went there once with my dad and uh, could not find an indigo snake. It was terrible. Well, we were like, only there for like three days down there. I know that's what everyone, that's what everyone keeps saying, but like, that's the best way to not find an animal. Like the more people tell you they're super common down there, the more likely you are to not find one. Yeah. I think the, <laughs> I the first time I went, I found like three of them just walking around. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, you know, I can't even claim that the conditions were bad because there were just snake tracks, like indigo tracks everywhere on the Sandy trails. We just, I don't know, man, just either it's being just, a shitty uh, herper or bad, bad, like bad luck. You know, it's just, uh, it's all about, you know, you're, you're going in an area and you're just trying to cross a path with this animal. And sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't happen that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, uh, we did find speckled racers. So that was cool. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I definitely didn't spend as much time out there as I would have liked to. I only did the one trip. Yeah. And it was only three or four days, I think. What about uh, West Texas? Did you do the, the cut shining thing? Never did that, no. We, um, we did a few trips with the family to, to the Big Bend region. Like, I think I did six or seven trips to Big Bend National Park, but it was always, like, when it was quite cold, maybe we went a few times in winter, and I think, like, October and maybe April, and April out there is still real early, I think. And, um, yeah, no, never really did that, no. Yeah. So I mean, missed a lot of things yeah. when I was gotta, out there. Got to come back, man. Uh, I'm, I'm planning on it, man. I'm planning <laughs> on doing a, like a whirlwind trip through the state one day for sure. Yeah. Did you, uh, anything else in the United States that you hit aside from Texas? Um, I suppose my best herping in the States was uh, a trip with my parents to the Smoky Mountains and just seeing all the salamanders. Like, I think that was, I think one of the trips we did there, I think I saw 20 species in a week or something. Which, that's, yeah, that's amazing. That's, uh, you know, that's, world that's unreal. World yeah, it really is. Salamander diversity. Yeah. In fact, possibly the most diverse like, it is, area. Um, it is. In terms of salamanders, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and they're mostly they're pretty much all of the plethodontid salamanders, mm. right? Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's also just the density of them, you know, like it's not, you can just find them under every rock in some places. And that, that was before actually I knew that you could clean up on salamanders walking around at night. So it was all just during the day flipping rocks. Like I would, I would love to do that at night sometime. Cause I don't, I don't really flip much, much like natural cover anymore. Like I'll flip logs for skinks and stuff, but most of the time I don't really bother. I know you mainly, you mainly photograph stuff sort of in situ now, but back then I'm assuming you were posing some of these, these plethodon, uh, these slimy salamanders, and I'm sure you hated them all. Yeah. Um, they suck for probably me anyway. 
<laughs> I think I hate all animals that I pose, to be honest. Yeah, they, it just ruins the experience at the time. It totally does. It it totally does. What I re, I recently I found this. There's this really cool skink that lives up here in the rainforest. Well, it goes all the way to the coast, but they're they're mostly known from the rainforest. And the juveniles have this really unique coloration. And I found one under a log, and I was absolutely frothing. And then I tried to photograph it, and fucking ruined it for myself. So. <laughs> You posted a picture of it, right? I did, yeah. I did, like a, I did like a boring up, portrait of it, like sort of, yeah. It, it ended up head. being a little, yeah. It ended up being a little bit better than I thought, but there were like a few other shots I was trying to take, and it just wasn't happening. And yeah, I mean, I, I at this point, I also have some fairly strong opinions about her photography in general, and um, yeah, I, I, I don't like the whole posing thing for myself anymore. No, but like you used to do that and that that is your experience is why you kind of strayed away from that because you you see for one how much frustration you feel in yourself if an animal isn't cooperating so you spend all this time looking for a species and you finally find it mm. and to really to really uh you know get the full experience you want to you want to take home a very nice image exactly but then like so that animal doesn't cooperate and you're out there for 30 plus minutes or whatever trying to pose it and in your head you're like okay this animal is definitely stressed out but you know i've traveled six hours mm. and i gotta get the shot and then you're frustrated and the animal's frustrated and mm. uh, it's something that I'm, I'm i'm sure herper's listening can, can relate to um mm. and and it's something that i've you know i noticed myself and i try not to do that anymore mm. I also very much understand why people do it. And I suppose another issue I personally have with it is that to me, it ceases to be wildlife photography when you are so blatantly manipulating an animal. Like you can't grab birds and mammals most of the time and put them where you want it. But like, it's, it's completely artificial most herb photography and i feel like wildlife i mean it's wildlife photography in the sense that you're taking photo of wildlife but it's not wildlife photography in the sense that you are like conveying the natural world in a realistic way like yeah sure that snake might have been in that position at some point but it wasn't and you put it there and it's totally artificial so yeah i i will say to that though is say you flip uh, like, you know, for some animals, you can only find them by flipping cover. And, and for me, sometimes I would like to, you know, get it out from under the cover and get a shot of it in the habitat. So you can get a feel mm. for its, for the na natural history of that animal mm. and the, the ecosystem that it's associated with. Um, so in that, in that regard, I, I would, I think sometimes I would like to pose just if anything to capture the animal if I flipped it, capture it in its natural habitat, you know, by pulling yeah. it out from under the cover, but then, you know, that can be frustrating sometimes if they're not cooperating. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I totally take that argument as well, but, um, also for me, like when I look back on photos that I've taken, like the ones for me, herping is all about finding the animal and in, in that moment, like your eyes landing on it sort of thing. And nothing captures that better than an in situ. So, because yeah. it's, it's like, you just, because that's that's what it looked like when you found it, you know what I mean? Like that you actually managed to capture that moment in a photo. And so for me, I mean, it's a bit confounded by the fact that I'm 
not as into photography anymore but now unless an animal is in a sort of attractive position when i find it i don't even bother photographing it yeah so like it's, it's sort of this two-step process now it's like first i have to find the animal and then the question is like is it in a position where i can get a cool photo and yeah. if yes i'll take a picture if no too bad that really i bet that really improves your experience and when the animal is in a nice position it's like even cooler you know it's a much more special mm. moment when you're able to find them in a nice presentable in situ position exactly and it saves so much so much time man it's like time. if you're if you're walking around like i mean you know the moment of when you're road cruising and it's pumping and you find something cool like you'll probably end up briefly bagging that animal because you don't want to miss the activity but if you're walking around looking for looking for animals you know like you the time you didn't spend photographing it you can you can find other animals in better positions so um, well, that said I, i'm sure we both can appreciate you know like john's classic field guide photos of every herb he finds they're fantastic yeah that they they are and I, I love his split photo showing the habitat but i've you know i think i think uh i think he has a very similar attitude to herping as me like i think he loves finding animals and seeing them out and about and just yeah i i do appreciate but you know i, I don't think he spends that much time on his field guide photos i'm not he sure doesn't. He, he's so quick he's like he's got magical fingers you know he mm. he poses them up very quickly they cooperate for him yeah then he's done yeah yeah. So, you know, then it's like, I, I had such, such like stringent requirements for my photos that I could just never take a photo that quick and be satisfied. And that ruined the experience as well. Whereas sometimes I, sometimes I think I should just start taking two minute field guide shots to at least get a record of the stuff I've seen. Cause like most of the stuff I don't photograph anymore, even though, especially recently I've really enjoyed harping again. Like I've spent a few, a few days a week, at least, you know, uh, spending so, some time looking for animals. So you're, you, you just, you set a very high uh, standard for your, cause like for people listening, Matthias is like a phenomenal photographer. Some of his photos, I want on my wall. Uh, some of the images oh, you take, man. especially you're in what Ecuador, Ecuador. Yeah. That's when I see in, in the Choco rainforest. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, and some of the, yeah, some also, of the yeah. lizards and stuff uh, you photographed and some of the vipers. I mean, these are like worlds, I have friends that think I'm like, they're like, oh, you should be a photographer for Nat Geo. I'm like, you don't understand. There's people like Matthias that exist. World world class herb photographer. So you have set a very high, and some of those shots, I'm assuming, some of them were in situ, right? Some of those shots you took down there, but some of them you had to work yeah, for yeah, too, so I'm assuming. Some would have, actually, I actually have to, well, not many actually in Ecuador because in, in Ecuador, not many in situ. There's a few frogs. I can't think of a single snake, actually, that was in situ there. As you I did was, have to work for them, some of them. I, I was heavily on the posing train back then. Yeah, I was really into it. It's still at that point. And I think I think what happened too with my with photos is, um, for the longest time I was never satisfied with the pictures I took. You know, like it was always like, yeah, like this is kind of cool, but I can do better. And then you know, around that time when I got to Ecuador, and about the two years after that, I started taking photos that I actually liked. Like I was sort of like, oh. You know, like I'm not saying they were the best or anything, just saying like I sort of reached a point where I was satisfied. But all those photos had good lighting, good focus, good pose, good composition. And so for any photo to ever, you know, for you to be satisfied, all those boxes need to be checked. So you 
essentially set this standard that will just take a lot of time to reach every time. And when you've already sort of reached a point where you're happy with it, it's like, I feel like I accomplished my personal photography goals. And then it's like, I don't need to keep doing this. Like, I don't, I've, I've, I've done it. Like I've, I've accomplished, I've accomplished what I wanted to with photography and yeah, I can keep doing it and spend, spend an hour each time and getting super frustrated and stressing out an animal, or I can just not take a photo. Yeah. Have any of your photos been like, I know for sure some of your photos have been featured in some sort of Nat Geo Instagram posts or, or, or Matt, like, have you had anything in like big magazines or anything like that? Nah, I've, I've submitted to a few, um, a few competitions and nothing ever got even to like a next round or anything. But I, you so, had some, some big network or something has, has shared your photos or. Yeah. Like, okay. I, I think Nat Geo or they, they share that sloth picture every year, I think so far for, for like international sloth day or something. I don't, I think that's about it. I don't think my, I haven't really sent my photos in anywhere that I never had any interest in selling or sort of getting it up. I feel like it was always a very personal project for me. Yeah. But and, so like, that's, you're not trying to be, be a photographer as your career, but that like stuff like that's cool though. When Nat Geo is sharing hmm. Your, your sloth photo that, that's a very cool photo too i, I know the one you're talking it's reaching out with its, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. sloth reaching out with its hand yeah that's yeah that's a neat it photo. was um yeah it, it, it was fun um, so so you want to shift to so you went from the united states to where to holland to holland and, and uh, did you want to talk about any herping there or did you want to go to oman or to south america uh, well, I could just briefly talk about what I, what I did there in my time. So okay. I, I went to Holland to study biology because yeah, I wanted to be an ecologist. Yep. So yeah, I, I did a bit of herping there, but, um, you know, nothing, nothing to write home about when you've been, been to some of these other places and did a few, few herping trips around Europe, which was fun. And yeah, about three years at into living there or two years maybe my parents moved to Oman which has provided a bunch of opportunities for me to to take on as a place I once I truly fell in love with um it's just in terms of herping and birding and mammals actually like it's just it's an incredible place extremely diverse uh people are extremely friendly just true rugged mountains in the north and sandy deserts and just it's I loved it out there people might not be familiar with where Oman is on the map you want to like what's a what's a uh, more well-known country nearby well it's it's pretty much the southeastern corner of the Arabian Peninsula so it borders Yemen on the south the UAE on the northwest and uh, Saudi Arabia on the west okay so yeah, it's, it's sort of just uh, Arabian Peninsula. Yeah, very very arid. Yep, very arid with um, the exception. Well, the um, the northern the northern part has a mountain range that goes up to three thousand meters, and uh, a part of the mountain range is called Jebel Akhtar, which means the Green Mountain. Uh, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily green, but it it gets a lot more moisture than than elsewhere, and it's a lot cooler as well. Uh, a lot of a lot of Asian relics up there, actually, because there used to be a, a land bridge between the Arabian Peninsula and and, and Central Asia, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, 
Any interesting herps up there in those mountains? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think the for me, the the holy grail was the Persian Persian horned viper, Pseudocerastes. Yeah. Um, they're pretty much restricted to the higher elevations. Like people used to think it was 800 meters and above, uh, although a friend of mine found one around 400 meters as well. Okay. Just like... I'm not sure how rare they are. I'm pretty sure they're quite rare. Like I, I spent a lot of time looking for them and I, I only found one. Um, but yeah, that was just another absolute highlight finding that animal. But then there's, there's about 120 described reptiles in the country. There's two amphibians only. There's two toads. There's, there's no permanent. Yeah. There, there's no rivers in the whole country. There, there's no permanent, permanent rivers, just like temporary washes basically. Um, yeah, about 120 uh, reptile species, but just so many awesome ones, you know, like you get the sand boa, I think there's like six or seven viper species and uh, a lot of agamids and heaps of cool geckos. It's just, I just loved everything I saw out there. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so how long were you there in Oman? My parents lived there for four four or five years i think and i think i ended up going there six or seven times maybe gotcha yeah cool. and, and, and i'm trying to think you had some really cool photographs from there there, there was one was a fox moving along the horizon oh yeah 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 was there cool. was a funny story actually because there was just this beautiful sunset because the because it's so i think it was mostly dust but also humidity but because it's so dusty there there's usually like a low cloud of dust basically so when the sun sets it's not that bright and you can look directly at the sun because it's it's masked by by all this dust so you can get these really beautiful sunset photos and i stopped the car and took some photos and only afterwards noticed that there was a fox running around and i got some photos of the fox and it turns out it was also in that first photo of the sunset so it's like this this silhouetted shot where there's this fox next to the sunset, like looking into the camera. And when I took that photo, I had no idea it was there. <laughs> that sort of thing yeah. happened to me. Uh, when I, my, my first trip to Big Ben was uh, this summer and I was, I was just photographing the, the agave plant blooms, mm -hmm. really giant flowers. And there was a hummingbird like right mm -hmm. next to it. And I got a beautiful shot of the hummingbird coming in to, for the nectar. Oh, and I didn't perfect. know that until after I went and looked at the photo after. Yeah, right. Same well, thing. what was it? Was it a ruby throat or? Man, I, I think it was. But out there, I think it could have been something else. I didn't even try to ID it. It, it, was, a, uh, yeah. it, was, a, it was a female. Uh, it didn't look like a male. So it would have been, I don't know. Who knows? It was just cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's some cool ones. What's the, there's some orange, orange looking hummingbird that migrates through Texas. R Rufus. Like, Rufus, maybe. Rufus, maybe, yeah. Yeah. So, but that, so you went from Oman and then you went to Ecuador? Yeah, I spent, uh, as part of my master's program, uh, the first year was coursework, and the second year was, half of it was a thesis, and the other half was an internship. So the guys at Tropical Herping, I'd always looked up to them so much because they were just, in my eyes, leaps and bounds ahead of anyone in terms of uh, herp photography. Like, I remember seeing Alejandro's photos for the first time, I think it was in 2012, and just being just mind blown. Like no one, I feel like her photography has caught up, but like he's been taking photos like that since before anyone even thought of taking photos like that. 
So yeah, he's an, he's an absolute, yeah, he's a machine. And I was just like, man, I need to do this internship. Like, can I come work for you guys? And yeah, I was welcome. I was welcome to come along. So uh, pretty quickly, my job just literally turned into go to places, find reptiles and amphibians, take photos of them on a white background and potentially collect some animals for research. And that was it. So that was for, for the five months I was there. Like I wasn't on expedition all the time, but basically when I was doing that stuff, my job was just to find reptiles and amphibians. I was just, just herping. And that, that was, was for the, the internship. Yeah. That's a, that was an internship for my master's degree. And, and then what did you do for your thesis? Uh, my thesis was, uh, I inspired actually by that internship with uh, white background photography. I did some research to see how white background photos help people identify animals in field guides. So the idea was like how much, because I, I always find, I don't know if you agree, a lot of field guides when they just have photos, it's quite hard to sort of see some important traits. Yeah, and definitely. a lot of, a lot of the time, you know, a lot of time you need to see something to, or even have it in hand to notice a difference. Like there's so many little brown skinks in Australia and you look through the field guide and you're just like, these all look the same to me. But then sometimes you see one of the like, uh, you know, smaller range sort of different ones and you see them in person. It's like, oh, this thing actually looks, I can tell that this is different, you know? And to me that I get that instantaneously when I see an animal, but when I see an animal in a guide, I don't. So the, the thesis was sort of aimed at like, how does having these standardized photos on a white background um, sort of help people identify animals? Yeah, that 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 research never got published. In hindsight, I there were some some methodological issues. So I would have I, I wouldn't be that interested in publishing it now just because yeah. I don't think it was it was executed as well as it could have been. Yeah. But yeah, you know, just learning, learning how to do research, basically. Where did you do your your master's and your under your uh, bachelor's? Yeah. So so that was all in Holland. OK. Um, universities is a lot cheaper in Holland and um, yeah I just because I hadn't lived in Holland for so long I just googled like best university in Netherlands biology and uh, that's where I went so I went to this place called Bacheningen which uh, yeah they're, they're rated quite high in terms of life sciences and stuff and it was in a pretty good location to do some herping in the area as well so yeah nice. good deal um so it's how, you were in Ecuador for just five, like five months, you said? Five months, yeah. Yeah. And you got all that cool, Which, cool photographs when you were there in those five months. Yeah, I mean, I was just, I was going hard back then with, in terms of photos, like definitely photographing as much as I, as I had energy for. And, you know, when we were doing those trips, like you're just out every night. And because it's, because it's tropical rainforest, you know, like you get this super high diversity, but sort of low numbers of each thing. But that, that does imply that almost every night you find something really cool. So yeah, this is, that was my experience there. Like there were places where I was walking the same trails for two weeks, every night and every night I would just find something really worth photographing. And I, I just, I love that place. I would love to go back to Ecuador. I, I absolutely fell in love with that place. Yeah. Yeah. Was the, the coolest species you saw there. That'll be a hard, hard one to answer, but <laughs> That, that will be a really hard one. Um, 
some of the first ones that come to mind are some of the eyelash vipers like they they got some really unique morphs out there like they get a a yellow one with pink and green eyes which is very different from the ones i've seen from costa rica some green and black ones which just looked insane um i did find a coral snake on like my first or second night herping out there which sort of it felt like redemption for for not <laughs> for not getting them in texas all those years um let's see pinocchio lizards the canopy anoles um it's it's honestly too much to mention like i just so many so many awesome things there that you see that is just worth worth remembering did you see any of the hum hummingbirds and other other birds there yeah i was so focused it's i've always sort of been intimidated birding wise when i go to a new place like australia as well like there's some like a thousand birds and they're all so different and just having to relearn all that stuff like i struggle with that big time and um so i didn't really actively get into birding when i was there i uh, did see some cool owls and yeah i mean heaps of hummingbirds i just wouldn't know most of the species you know you mentioned uh you mentioned all those species in australia for me that would be very refreshing moving to a a new continent and having like being able to start over because you know much of what uh, makes being a naturalist so fun is, is like right when you start off and, and those initial moments you know getting to getting to know an ecosystem and, and the animals in it and um i feel like that'd be that'd be pretty cool to move to a totally new place with totally new fauna um, with her, I'm sure you experienced yeah. that with herps, if anything, when you went, when you moved to Australia. Yeah, for, for sure. And I've always just, I've always had a major reluctance of just reading through field guides and seeing what's out there. I just, for some reason, I find it extremely boring. Me too. Um, but yeah, you fairly quickly get familiar with like local common animals if you just go out enough. So, I mean, I know most of the common birds out here and, you know, the reptiles and all that stuff, but. Yeah, just, again, it's just about the experience of going out somewhere and looking for animals and not necessarily knowing what everything is by name that I just find, find the most interesting. And, and yeah, I, I've also struggled to flip through field guides. I, I have like all these field guides and I, I don't actually spend that much time looking at them. When I was younger, I did because it, like with herbs, those field, some of the field guides had good information about the habitat and, and, and locales and stuff. But now um, I really like, just getting out and and getting to know these ecosystems in person you know go out and mm. explore different areas and, and find those species and learn about them as you go um so it's not as boring and it's a little more exciting well i suppose i'm also i'm i'm a bit curious about how you go with with all the plants and stuff because i know you like plants as well whereas to me that seems like the ultimate sort of intimidating thing to learn like i've taken flora courses at university and I wasn't overly interested and I just learned so little during them and I just found it. Yeah. Like excessively difficult and just wondering yeah. what your experience is with learning all the plants. It, uh, I mean, it started out just, it was just another thing to photograph. And then you, you go out and you, you start photographing some of these East Texas orchids and, and you're learning about, you know, these, they grow in these very specific, uh, areas with certain moisture levels and certain soils and it kind of opened my eyes and I'm like man these are actually really interesting ecologically um and so that's that's a big part of it and also just for me 
knowing plants has, has helped me um, understand a lot of natural history about, you know, animals too. You know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. if, you, if you know, if you're really familiar with the plant communities and plant ecology in general, I think it, I think it can be useful when you're looking for, for different animals. And, and if anything, it, it just it improves my experience when I go out outdoors you know when i when i like look at something and i know what it is and i know what's going on mm-hmm. and i know like you know that seepage bog is is uh you know supporting this flora for this reason it just it makes it more interesting and also i think another big part of it for me is you know in texas we've lost so much of our of our native ecosystems a lot of it's degraded and a lot of our big uh you know megafauna is, is pretty much gone now and we, we have lost quite a few animals um due to human causes but like there are some plants that still represent those pre-settlement conditions where the plants that are only growing in very mature ecosystems that have been around for hundreds if not thousands of years and so i like spending time in those areas looking for those plants and along the way you find cool animals as well yeah, I've, I've often thought or, yeah, that if you know the plants, you just look, you just look at the surrounding habitat with much greater resolution. Because I can sort of look at something and be like, yeah, like it looks like good habitat, but I can't say like, oh, it's good habitat because of these trees in the overstory and like, you know, this understory. And I feel like being able to look at, not just see a habitat, but see a community of plants and know what they are would probably greatly improve my ability to read ecosystems and also would probably improve my ability as a herper as well. I think the main thing, just to keep it simple, is, is being able to identify uh, a species that, like late succession species, species that represent the, like the climax community. It's like when I drive around Houston and I'm looking at prairies, um, if I see a if I see a field of Bermuda grass uh, or, or like King Ranch blue stem, I'm like this is probably this site has likely been disturbed, um, and it may not have all the prairie fauna present. But if I see a field with little little blue stem and big blue stem and Indian grass, I'm like okay, this is a mature prairie. These are original prairie grasses, and this might be a good place to look for rare prairie snakes like you know ring necks or whatever um or you know smooth ring snakes or so i think mm. that's just being able to identify the species that represent the climax community to understand if that area has been disturbed i think can be useful mm. for herpers or, or naturalists in general absolutely and i think you know i i just meet it with some resistance but i i, I know <laughs> like that, that that just that seems like such a such a valid reason to learn your plants you know yeah. Even if it's just to recognize to be better at recognizing suitable habitat for the species you're looking for, like you'd almost say it's like it's like essential. But <laughs> yeah. I suppose I suppose you get away without it. But now, I don't know how important it really is as like a herper, but um, it's just fun for me. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I I can imagine, and I've I've always thought that the more you know about the species, the more you're able to appreciate a habitat. Because someone who doesn't know anything, they just might see some plants and some animals. Whereas, you know, at least for herpers, we can be like, oh, that's this snake, which is cool because it's like, you know, we know this stuff about snakes. And if you can extend that to the plants, you're just able to much more thoroughly enjoy, yeah. enjoy that part of the world because you, you know what you're looking at and the context and the history of all of it. 
Yeah. And, and, and for me, like, you know, if I look at a, I don't know, like say a prairie king snake in a cage, I mean, I can appreciate the snake and it's, you know, it's cool, but it's deeply uninteresting to me to, to just look at a, a snake like that in a cage. But if I see it out in, in a prairie ecosystem and, and seeing it as a part of that ecosystem, that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. That's what I really enjoy. Like I don't keep mm. any herbs. I haven't kept herbs in a long time. I'm not have almost zero interest in keeping herbs because what really gets me fired up about them is seeing them, you know, in, in the ecosystem that they're a part of mm. and, and how, how they fit into that ecosystem. And that's kind of how I, how I uh, operate now. Yeah. I, I think there used to be a, a much like the relationship was much closer to one-to-one between collectors and herpers. Like I think most herpers were collecting to keep. Whereas to me, that just seems like the most boring thing I could possibly do. <laughs> and I just, I, I am a bit mystified by why it started out that way and why people weren't just interested in, in finding animals, like wh- why there was such a strong pressure to collect everything. Like, I suppose you could have sold it, but like at the same time, like it's got to feel a little, a little bit wrong to go to these beautiful places and take all this stuff and just take it out and sell it yeah. to, for someone to put in a cage. Like it just, I don't know. Yeah, I've I've worked in in several like uh like reptile facilities and, and and like working with crocodilians is cool in captivity, but as far as like personal keeping, I, I find it pretty uninteresting. Although I will say there are a few there are a few snakes that I wouldn't mind having at some point, just just little novelty things. Um, like what? I don't know. I think if like if I ever find a pygmy rattlesnake, it's going to be a very monumental moment. I might want to mm. keep it, you know. Um, as long as it's not in an area where I feel like it's a problem to keep it, um, like something like that, maybe, but I guess I don't, I don't care to have a, a, you know, a snake room full of snakes. Yeah. I suppose the, the few things that I might find interesting is having like a nice little arboreal viper in a cool cage. But to be honest, I think I'd get bored of it pretty quick as well. Yeah. I feel like the, the best, the best way to make a, a cool animal boring is to put it, put it in a cage. Yeah, and like you, you, like when I was a kid, I used to keep everything I found. Uh, it would get boring after like two weeks. I'm like, I don't, I don't give a shit about you anymore. Leave. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Go, go, go from it's, uh, it's, it's exciting at first when, when you first find an animal. That's the best. And then I, I would find it fun to keep it for a little bit, you know, and play with it. And uh, also, when I was young, I, you know, so many wild herbs I collected just died because I didn't know how to keep herbs when I was a little mm. kid. I still don't like compared to people that are really passionate about keeping, I, I probably still don't know shit, but um, that's mm. why I don't keep, that's why I don't keep a lot of herbs. But, you could uh, probably keep it alive at this stage though. <laughs> probably. Um, but I do appreciate some people that are really interested. Like some herb keepers are very interested in the natural history of the animal and trying to mimic that and try to get them mm. to breed. And, um, and they make real naturalistic, you know, setups. That stuff's pretty interesting. And obviously some of yeah. it has, has conservation value as well. Yeah, I mean, I love going to reptile houses and zoos, to be honest. Yeah, like, yeah me too. I, I, I really do enjoy that. I just can't see myself doing it. Just, it would be such an effort. Like, you know, we only have so much time time in our lives, and that's that's not where I want to put my time. I want to, I prefer to put my time in a building piles of tin and maybe finding a few snakes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Speaking of, you've been sending me some very juicy pictures mm. of tin out there in the Australian hills. Mm. Um, I want to talk about Australia um, now. We, we've mentioned it a little bit. So I really want to go there. Um, I'm really interested in the orchids there. There's like thousands of orchid species there. The herbs, obviously. The mammals are super bizarre. 
Mm. Are there any, I guess some of the only placental mammals are, are species that were brought there, like rats and dog, like dingoes and stuff. Everything yeah. else is a marsupial, right? There are a bunch of native rodents as well. Oh, there They're, are some native uh, placental, like, okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that have been that have been there for like millions of years okay I see. um and and there's bats okay bats too are those the only placental mammals i i believe so yeah everything else yeah. as is a marsupial right yeah uh, uh, assuming you you also don't consider the dingo to be a native a native animal is, is that a, a controversial thing with the dingoes the origin of dingoes for for some people yeah like for me it's pretty I mean, they've been, they've definitely been brought there by, by people, uh, aboriginals though. So it's been like thousands of years, but to me, it's just like an invasive species fast forwarded thousands of years. Yeah. You know? So yeah, they, they, they definitely weren't there before people were there, Yeah, but they've just been naturalized. And, you know, I mean, obviously there's all these arguments you can make that they, they now fill the apex predator role. Cause you know, Australia, like every other place lost its megafauna upon the, with the arrival of people. Um, you know, like, I'm, uh, I've, I've no issue with dingoes. I just, I, I just wouldn't refer to them as native. Yeah. You know, you don't see them as a part of the, the natural fauna that, that evolved there for millions of years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But still, still very much part of that ecosystem now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, all the kangaroos and, and, and wallabies and the wombats, these are very charismatic animals. I would love to just go there and photograph some of those. It's, Andy, it's Andy just Andy bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's so cool walking around and just seeing, seeing all these things that are so different from what you're used to as well. Like, I also love echidnas. They're probably one of the most bizarre animals you can find in Australia, and they're, they're actually really common. Like, I, I see them, you know, several times a month probably. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just bizarre. But there, there are also just lots of animals around like the, you can just always go out and find some animals, which is great. Like in, in yeah. Holland, you know, you, you can't really go out that much and expect to find mammals everywhere you go. Whereas here you, yeah. you really can. Yeah. For people that don't know what an echidna is, it's a it's an egg laying mammal. <laughs> egg laying mammal that kind of looks like a hedgehog, but it eats nothing but ants and it's got this and tiny little straw for a nose for a face really yeah that that the echidna and the platypus both are egg-laying mammals and those two species existing now has really helped us understand a lot about mammalian biology and evolutionary history right? mm, I, I didn't even know that but I'm I, would surprised assume, you say it. I would assume obviously i don't know a whole lot about either i just know that mm. they're both egg-laying mammals and that that says a lot about you know mammals Mm, yeah yeah it sure does yeah in fact, it's still like when i like when i say that it just it's, it doesn't sound right egg laying man yeah. so strange yeah yeah it sort of goes against sort of what you think defines them but yeah, yeah that's cool but i suppose that does mean that they lactate no because i'm pretty sure one of one of the defining characteristics of mammals is that they lactate yeah, yeah. they got it they have so you to get these, you get these egg layers breastfeeding their young yeah <laughs> pretty so weird pretty so weird. old have you seen have you seen a platypus i have yeah i uh haven't seen many around here they are around here though you just got to spend time like around streams where they are um i don't necessarily do that but 
they're yeah they're they're actually pretty easy to find in lots of places oh wow and yeah. mostly in the southern half of, of australia i think they might be more common there but i know they go all the way up the east coast all the okay. way to like okay. north north queensland and gotcha. i would have thought that too but then it turns out there are just like heaps of streams around where i live where you can get platypus gotcha so yeah they're 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 pretty widespread very difficult to photograph i'm assuming yeah they just they sort of float around a little bit and then they go under again they're probably easier to photograph than like your average alder i'd say yeah but, i mean i, yeah. I have I never have any expectations to get a, a photograph of an otter in Texas because they're so yeah. rare to see. And when you see them, yeah. it's a fleeting glimpse. Yeah. Have you seen, have you seen them before? Yeah. I, I used to have them in my pond behind my house. My, when I lived in the Beaumont area, uh, yeah, right. we had, we had, we've had them move through, you know, they come in, they eat a bunch of fish and then they leave. Mm. Pretty cool. Yeah. No, um, I'd love to, I don't think I've ever seen a, uh, an otter. Yeah. But so yeah. No, any description. So you're getting a, you've been, how long have you been in Australia? Uh, coming up on three years in December now. So you've gotten a, a decent feel for some of the flora and fauna at this point. I'm assuming. It's a big yeah. place with a lot of diversity, but you know, I'm sure you're mm. starting to really get a feel for it. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. Especially locally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's an amazing place and, I think the most appealing thing still about Australia is there are just lots of national parks, lots of lots of land that that is protected. I mean, don't get me wrong, for a country that just has 25 million people, like they've done an amazing job destroying a lot of it. And uh, I think I think the per capita, um, what do you call it, the carbon carbon footprint is some of the highest in the world. So, you know, they they they're doing their part in terms of um yeah destroying the place for lack of a better word but having said that there's also lots of places that are really quite wild other than the yep. ferals that are there the introduced animals um and yeah that's that's just a real a real privilege if you uh if you zoom in on google maps and just check out the east coast you'll just see so many national parks i've been and, noticing that I've been noticing, yeah. I've been researching Australia a lot because coming to hang out with you next year, hopefully. Yeah, man. Um, and yeah. There's, I've been looking at iNaturalist and, and Google Earth. And uh, my, my view of Australia has always been through the lens of like watching the crocodile hunter, Steve Irwin. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he spent a lot of time in, in, in the northern part, in the deserts, looking for taipans and um, like the Sunshine Coast. Um, I, like this whole southern, southern part. Uh, it's totally new to me. I, I never knew any of that existed, and it's got very unique flora and fauna. Mm. Um, and I think when I go, I, I really want to spend my time around where you're at. You're in New South Wales, right? Yeah, northern New South Wales. I'm actually not far from the Sunshine Coast. I'm only about three and a half hours drive south of there. So that would be perfect for me because I do want to go to the Sunshine Coast, and I, w- I want to see the Australia Zoo. Just oh yeah, yeah. The, the, the little kid in me has to go there. Um, yeah, to, to see the croc is like the crocs out there. Uh, there, there's some good herping spots around there as well. Oh, Ang- angle-headed dragons and uh, uh, Stevens banded snakes and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. What are some? Uh, so you've seen, you've seen a fair number of species now. What are some of the cooler snakes you've seen? Some of the cooler snakes. Um, I suppose. I suppose I'd be lying if I said I hadn't gotten used to them by now. But just having pythons being so common as they are 
it's just, it's just, you know, coming from where, where we come from, that's just kind of a bizarre thing, you know, and they are truly abundant. Um, they are in lots of houses. I recently went to go pick up some tin somewhere and I was talking to the guy, he was like renovating his house and he said they'd already pulled three pythons out of the attic. And, you know, that, that's just like one house. Like, I feel like they're the equivalent of a, of a rat snake in the States, but then, you know, they get up to like two and a half, three meters. Carpet pythons? Um, carp pythons, yeah. yeah. Um, another, another snake I actually really enjoy, even though they're, they're quite common as Eastern brown snakes. They're really quite variable um and they're not as easy to find as as you think like they're they're very common but they're extremely hard to target like i think there's there's snakes like that in in the states as well um i'd even go as far as to compare them to hognose snakes where you know they they do quite well in suburbia but most of the time when you go out looking for hognose snakes you're probably not going to find them yeah um let's see what else I love seeing goannas around. The leaf-tail geckos are really easy to find in the rainforest, which, and you know, that's that's also top-tier herb, if you ask me. Yeah, those are really neat. Um, yeah, lots of good frogs. Um, yeah, I mean, the the biggest thing it's missing is salamanders, to be honest. Not a single caudate present, huh? Not a single never, one. That never is, made it there. That's its fatal flaw. And uh, well, uh, actually, it. It's fascinating from a biogeographic standpoint, but disappointing yeah. all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. The Australia's biggest flaw is its overabundance of huge spiders. Oh shit. <laughs> Very I'm dangerous not, not spiders. Sure. Very dangerous ones. Yeah. Dude, I saw your that post, uh, you had one in your truck or something, your car. Oh man, that that yeah, I would uh I was pretty close to being hysterical there. Like I've I've got a <laughs> I've got a proper case of arachnophobia and uh, that was um, that's a situation I've, I've always prepared for because I know they do get into cars and I've heard lots of stories of them being under visors so that people will be driving and they flip the visor down and a big spider falls in your lap that that to me that would be game over I think but yeah, uh, yeah not, not good with spiders love the snakes I would I would I would take a brown snake in my car any day over a huntsman. That's for sure. How is it herping in an area where, where there are some of the most venomous snakes in the world, you know, like, in a, like, I don't know. I just, uh, I feel like I'll be nervous going out there and I go to grab any, any non-threatening looking snake. Cause I don't, I don't know if it's going to kill me or not. Yeah. Um, I, I walk around in, in flip-flops like I do everywhere else. Um, <laughs> it doesn't, there there are lots of venomous snakes there but it's not like the density is is like insane like you're probably not going to step on one yeah and yet to be honest like the thing it's, it's a bit of a meme where people say everything in australia wants to kill you like people love to say that for some reason I've said like, that yeah, yeah well the, 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 there's a lot of highly venomous animals there but it's it's still very unlikely you're going to get bitten by one yeah like lots of lots of potentially deadly spiders, I don't really see them very much, and the the ones I do see always retreat into their burrows right away when you when you get too close. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's it, it hasn't changed my my herping or my outdoor experience in any way. 
knowing yeah. the the high density of venomous venomous animals around. So, so was it always an aspiration to to go to Australia or live there, or did it just kind of come about? You found a PhD program yeah. that you were interested in, or it it actually it actually was. I'd, I'd had it shortlisted as a place I wanted to live since I was like fifteen or sixteen. Yeah. Uh, mostly, well, it's like the culmination of a few factors, like the good herping um, and the fairly low population density, which implied there'd be lots of lots of land to look for snakes, basically. Um, and I did kind of want to stay in a in a Western country, just because you know that's where I'd always grew up and the convenience of it. I, yeah, yeah, most of the convenience, and then yeah, you quickly. Australia has to be on that list somewhere. Yeah. And so what are you? Sorry. I was basically looking for an excuse to get to Australia and um, uh, PhD seemed like a good opportunity. Yeah. So so what are you doing now with your PhD? Yeah, my PhD is uh, investigating the effect of uh, chytrid fungus on a frog species that has recovered post decline. Okay. Basically, to, to assess the vulnerability to chytrid once once populations have recovered after initial epidemics. You want to explain what chytrid is? Actually, I mentioned it in a previous episode, but I'm not familiar enough with it. I know it's a real problem for frogs, but. Uh, can you explain what it is and its impact uh, on a global scale? Yeah, so so chytrid fungus is a um, is a fungus that affects uh, some frogs. It uh, attacks the uh, keratinized um, cells of the skin and gets into the body that way. Uh, it was spread around the world by people, so it originated in East Asia, where there's several lineages and. Uh, species are basically immune to it, or at least they've, they've lived with it for so long, they're fine. Um, then one or several lineages were spread around the world by global trade. So it's a bit unclear still how exactly that happened, but uh, it is pretty clear that certain lineages arrived and spread around and caused these massive declines. So uh, it's actually caused the, the greatest um, decimation of vertebrate diversity attributable to a pathogen ever. So in terms of a biodiversity affected, it's, it's the deadliest pathogen ever recorded. Um, it's caused the extinction of at least 100 species that we know about, and about 500 are known to be affected by it. So um, it arrived in Australia in 1978 and then spread north and south. And I believe six or seven species have gone extinct in Australia out of uh, approximately 250 species. Wow. And a few, a, a few dozen were affected or continued to be uh, affected by it. Are there, are there certain uh, climates? Like, does it do better in a warmer climate? Is that a, is that a factor? Does it actually better in like temperate, colder-ish so it, it doesn't grow very well above 25 degrees. Okay. Um, so most of the species, depending on where you are, are actually at higher elevations where it's a bit cooler and wetter. So in Australia, the farther north you go, uh, it really only caused declines at higher elevations. Uh, where I am, it's also a bit elevation associated, but also the lowlands because it's, it's a bit more temperate here. And just well, to be clear, in, in Northern Australia, you're getting hotter. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, yeah. yeah. You, you're getting closer to the equator, for, yeah. For, we got a lot of Americans here that are probably, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, so in um, a lot of the, or the most, most of the declines that were documented happened in Australia, uh, Central and South America, and the Western United States, and a few outbreaks in Europe. Um, most of them have been associated with higher elevations. So um, especially um, uh, Central and South America is more higher elevations. Yeah. Uh, some actually some really interesting research has come out over the last few years where uh, they think it has more to do with a thermal mismatch, which basically implies that the thermal niche where a host, so where a frog does best, is narrower compared to the niche of the pathogen, which basically implies, let's say you have an average annual temperature of 20 degrees. That's where your frog's immune system might work its best, let's say. If it gets far away from that 20 degrees average, that's when it's more vulnerable to the pathogen because the pathogen does better over a wider range of temperatures than the host does. That's sort of the theoretical background. So what they found is that a lot of outbreaks were associated in unseasonably warm years for cold adapted species. So for example, when you have some high elevation frogs that are adapted to cooler temperatures, when you get warm years, but it's still within sort of the thermal um, performance range of the pathogen, the pathogen is caused declines in those years. So it doesn't seem to be as black and white as just which temperature is it. It's like, is it an, an, is it an anomaly for, for the frog basically for the year? Is it unseasonably warm or cold? Yeah. So place, places that are generally warm where frogs are more warm adapted, you get more outbreaks where you get unseasonably cool years. Places where it's cold, you get more outbreaks where you, there are unseasonably warm years. Gotcha. So, for example, Australia gets La Nina events where it's um, some years are cooler and wetter than other years, and those years are are believed to make uh, to be bad chytrid years because um, in places where they're more warm adapted, you suddenly get these cold, wet seasons. And then there's also the fact that chytrid generally does better when it's wet and with somewhat lower temperatures. Yeah, but it, it, it's sort of hard to split. It's sort of hard to split the two because you can grow chytrid in the lab and find optimal growing conditions, but those growth curves look different on frogs if you take into account um, which for which temperatures the frogs perform best at. Yeah. So let's say, let's say chytrid might do best at 18 degrees when it's grown in a petri dish. If you try and infect a frog that is adapted to live at 18 degrees, chytrid might not do that well at 18 degrees because the immune system of the frog is fighting it around yep. those temperatures. Yep. But generally, generally, just from the patterns of uh, declines and extinctions seems to be somewhat higher elevations in subtropical to tropical regions. Gotcha. I think that's why I, I, I just assumed it, it was a sort of a warmer climate issue but not not really the case it's it's they're in, in like areas along the equator where it's found it's it's at higher elevations and, and mountain systems yeah and i there are definitely plenty of things i still don't understand about it like why 
why there weren't more declines in the United States, or maybe they just went unnoticed. That's another thing too, where, you know, it seems like a lot of, a lot of communities sort of bounce back and you either get um, species that naturally recovered. There was just an extremely strong selection event where, you know, most of the animals died, but the resistant ones remained. Um, and and, and urines are, are a real boom and bust in some cases. So you, they have a bad year that. from chytrid and then they come back very, very strong and go unnoticed. Exactly that. And that's another thing. It's, it's good to say that there's another thing with like uh, fire research. I'm sure you remember the mega fires that hit Australia last year. I did a little bit of a uh, little bit of a literature review on the effect of fire on frogs and some of the best studies came from the Western United States with um, what are they? Marsupi t- uh, tailed frogs. Oh yeah. The, uh, that, the yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, that's it. And that's a species that takes a long time to mature. Like they've got several years as tadpoles and then they've got low fecundity. So this is a species that like takes a long time to reach adulthood and then they don't reproduce that much. And from that research, they found that populations seem to recover within two generations, which for that species was like five to 10 years. But for most species, that's like one to two years, right? Yeah. So you can decimate populations due to a sort of black swan event, like a fire. But if there's no like systemic changes that make that place unsuitable, a lot of animals are capable of, of rebounding. And what I've found with that little literature review was that frogs actually don't, on a population level, don't seem to care that much about fire. They, they were not able to find strong effects of fire on frog populations. Um, so yeah, with, with, with chytrid, some species, like we've got some critically endangered species here in, in Australia that just don't seem capable of evolving resistance on this time frame. So most, the populations that still exist are sort of in this environmental niche that slightly favors the frog, even though all of those individuals apparently will die from chytrid at some point in their life. So the goal is kind of like, can they survive until their first reproductive event? So there's there's populations that are extremely age truncated where before chytrid, you'd have like individuals being anywhere from two to five years old or older. And then after the epidemic, all all the reproductive animals are one year old because each time they just die after these breeding events. You look at something like, looking at the big picture of something like chytrid, it's one of those, it's one example of the sort of human mediated biological, like, uh, like mismatch. And we're we're moving from continent to continent. We're bringing stuff from different areas where species didn't evolve to this plant or this pathogen Mm -hmm. or, 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 or this, you know what I mean? It's one of those examples of, uh, you know, it's, when, when humans began to really move around, we, we bring things to different areas where those ecosystems are unfamiliar with how to, and those animals are unfamiliar with how to deal with it. And that's when you have yeah. huge, huge problems. Um, that's just yeah, yeah. one way humans are influencing biodiversity on the planet is, is stuff like this is, you know, moving these, yeah. this chytrid fungus around. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, and, but you know, that is just the reality of a globalized society. And yeah. um you, I mean, I think we should definitely try and stop the spread. I mean, one thing that is, you know, sort of sitting at the edge of my seat is the arrival of B-cell to the Americas, the, the, the salamander chytrid fungus. Oh, wow. I have no idea about this. 
Oh, that that's so that's another uh, another Southeast Asian chytrid fungus that doesn't affect frogs but salamanders. That was first detected in the south of the Netherlands. Now I'm not sure what the this this is definitely not fact what I'm about to say, but what I what I suspect happened is that is the only spot or one of two spots in the Netherlands where you can see fire salamanders. And obviously heaps of uh, fire or salamander fanatics go there and lots of salamander fanatics have captive salamanders. So it seems to me that that was probably introduced by someone from their, their collection. Cause if you swab um, captive collections of, of Southeast Asian salamanders in Europe, like you're going to detect this fungus and it absolutely destroys fire salamanders. Like that population in the Netherlands went from, I mean, it, it's a precipitous decline to only seeing a few animals and that's spreading through Western Europe right now. And there's something like a, it's called bees. So uh, when we talk about chytrid fungus, like you get the, the amphibian one, which is BD Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis. And this is B cell Batrachochytrium salamandrivorans. So there's, there's a B cell task force in, in the United States that's like trying to stop the, or the arrival of B cell to the United States because that would be a fucking catastrophe. Yeah, in terms of, here we have the highest salamander diversity in the world and we do not want to lose that. No, no, definitely not. And, so, and, and just, especially in, the, in those mountains and the uh, Smokies and, and like they make up such a large part of the biomass. They're playing a large role in those ecosystems. Yeah, it, it, are, aren't they the, the greatest vertebrate bio, or a biomass, biomass. In, those, in those mountains? Like, I've, heard, I've heard something like that. Yeah, like so. Yeah, that's that's real serious shit. Um, I, I'm glad I'm glad you're bringing that up because I have I have I have no knowledge of that. Um, that that's scary. We 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 really got to hope that that doesn't make it here to, to the states. Yeah, and I think you know, there's I don't know if you've seen it. I remember years ago people getting upset about these like trading bans on salamanders or something, and it's like. You know, I understand that's frustrating for your hobby, but like you gotta you gotta understand what's at stake here. Yeah. You know, like you this this fungus is is wreaking havoc in Western Europe right now and with, with no sign of slowing down, I think. And there are they've already done lab studies. I mean, they're they're already exposing like American salamanders in the lab to it and the results don't look that great. Yeah. So, you know, that's we, we have the chance to stop this. Whereas BD BD was causing declines 20, 20 years before it was described. So people, people had no idea what was causing these declines. They were talking climate change, acid rain, UV. Like some people thought it might have been a disease, but people had no idea. And that, that was discovered because of that. Was the golden toad? Or, or um, something? Is that one of the main ones? I don't, that... Yeah, yeah. Golden toad was, yeah. I, Coast, I think, Costa Rica. Yeah, then um i it was it was actually it was actually isolated by two people i believe in both central america and in australia in 97 98 is when they they found that there was a fungus growing on these dead and dying frogs yeah um yeah but globalization is is going to bring bring unique challenges and, and in a way it doesn't it's hard to believe that we're going to contain the spread of that. Like at some point you think it'll leak kind of like the whole COVID thing, you know, like and in Australia, we've had so many lockdowns yet. There'll just be like one, 
one sort of leak out of a hotel quarantine thing and it'll spread and like it only needs to happen once you know so to think i i I really want those efforts to be successful but i think we have to brace for for failure but hopefully not like in in that sense you know like you you really want to be vigilant with animal trade and to not spread disease to your your native populations like you said, there, there's so much at stake. You, you can't just simply yeah. replace biodiversity. I mean, you can no. do range reductions and stuff, but man, when, when you lose, like I remember uh, reading about the, like the golden toads, these, the, the locals there, they said like, it was like within a very short time scale where there were all these to- like golden toads and they're just calling and they're very, um, you know, they're just very visible. You can see them all over the place and they were gone, like out of nowhere, mm. just disappeared. And the locals noticed that. There's um, the best study I know of that sort of describes what happens during an, an epidemic event is I'll actually just grab the name of the study because I know who wrote it. Um, I believe, yeah, it's by Karen Lips in 2006. And the title of the article is Emerging Infectious Disease and the Loss of Biodiversity in a Neotropical Amphibian Community. They describe, uh, they had this sort of long-term field site. I I believe it's this one. Uh, Otherwise it's one of our other papers. Um, And they had um, this long-term field study and they could sort of track what was going on with the spread of chytrid and um, they, they knew it when it was going to arrive because they could sort of tell like, oh, there's a decline here and then a decline there. And they could sort of time the spread of the disease. And so they, they knew when it was going to get to their study site and they just described what happened over those. It was just a matter of weeks when they were finding heaps of dead frogs and then just silence in the forest. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Anything else you want to talk about? um with australia or anything else you're um, up to i suppose speaking about invasives there's one thing one thing i'm curious about curious about your thoughts on is how come invasive species sometimes do so much better than any native animal that lives there man I, that's they, uh... they, they can absolutely explode and reach these massive densities and it's like you were did not evolve for this specific ecosystem you're sharing it with all these species that did evolve in this ecosystem, how come you do so well? And I'm just thinking of things like Burmese pythons and yeah, um, even and fire Aust- ants and stuff. In Australia, y'all got it, rabbits and, and cane toads. Cane toads here, yeah. I don't yeah. know if you have any thoughts on that. Why? Why some of those things just? I think they're evolutionarily so well. superior. Mm. I think that's it. I think they're these generalist species are just from an evolutionary standpoint they're like being a generalist is like we often overlook generalist species the common species that you know your nerodia and stuff that are living in urban mm. areas we mm. don't appreciate them because they're common but from like from like an uh, like an evolution standpoint i mean jokes on on us because they can survive anywhere and they're always gonna they're gonna be able to persist for much longer than highly specialized species that we're more interested in Mm. I think that's all I have to say about invasives in general. Yeah, um, like Western pygmies suck by comparison. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're exactly. <laughs> they're pretty terrible at it. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, man, this was great. Uh, 
if you don't have anything else, we can close it out here. Yeah, man. Sounds good. Uh, hope to have you over here in, uh, in a year and we can, we can try to clean up for you. Yeah, man. I'll just one full week of going hard. That sounds perfect. It is. Yeah, man. Looking forward to it. Same. Yeah. See you, man. See ya.